It was a winter afternoon in Canterbury, just after Christmas actually, the 29th of December. Four senior men from the government arrived to talk to the rather independent-minded Archbishop of Canterbury. He'd been making inflammatory statements and taking a stand against the authorities, but that wasn't the 21st century or even the 20th century. It was the year 1170. And the Archbishop of uh, Canterbury was not um, a self-styled bearded lefty. He was Thomas a Becket. The government officials were knights. After remonstrating with him in the cathedral, they turned, left the cathedral, recovered their swords that they'd left under a sycamore tree and returned running. Thomas was uh, just joining the service of Vespers. It was evening. But they seized him, they struck him on the head, another knight struck him so that he fell to the ground and then a third struck him with his sword so that the top of his head came off and the sword was shattered in the same process. Another member of the party put his foot on the dead archbishop's neck and and scattered the brains and blood and said, Let us go, knights. This man will arise no more. It was a brutal, vicious murder. Actually, in reality, the conflict that Thomas was part of was far from being a conflict between a saint and a tyrant. It was much more a sordid power struggle between Henry II and the man who had actually just recently been his Lord Chancellor. But the murder of Thomas Becket became actually one of the defining stories of the English nation. Henry was forced to do penance for having incited the knights to murder. Later tradition tells us he cried out in exasperation, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? And crucially, as a result of Thomas's death, Henry's attempt to gain power over the church was thwarted. Thomas the Martyr actually became, for hundreds of years after, the iconic saint of those who were were determined to limit the power of government in England. His shrine at Canterbury was so popular that the road from London to Canterbury um, needed to be strengthened London Bridge even needed to be rebuilt and was rebuilt with a shrine to Thomas on it. Not surprisingly, Henry VIII, when he was attempting to gain power over the church, demolished the shrine to Thomas at Canterbury. 
And even in, actually in the early 20th century, T.S. Eliot turned to the story of Thomas a. Beckett in his play Murder in the Cathedral in order to comment on the, what he saw as the dangerous rise of fascism. Now, Thomas stands as a representative of the uh, dynamic and sometimes hostile relationship between church and state that has perhaps been the most significant recurring issue in British history for at least the last 900 years. By the beginning of the, cent- of the 20th century, many people actually thought that uh, that conflict had settled down. Evangelicals, in particular, at the beginning of the 20th century, increasingly were suspicious of, politically inv- of political involvement. They insisted the church's role is, is, is to preach the gospel. And the state during that period, still actually largely influenced in its attitudes by uh, um, uh, um, Christian values, began to take on more and more responsibilities, responsibilities especially for social care and education that hitherto had been the main responsibility of the churches. So many people thought Finally, the relationship between church and state was settling down. But beginning in the 1960s, there was another profound revolution which began. According to a historian called Callum Brown, who wrote a book, The Death of Christian Britain, the watershed was 1962 when the... um, Beatles first uh, um, released their album and actually went the year that I was born. Whether he's right about that or not, around about that time, something happened in public attitudes. Before then, even people who would never darken the door of a church thought in basically Christian categories when they were deciding moral and political issues. And Callum Brown has shown um, uh, how decisively that changed during the 60s. From a reflex of sympathy to Christian values, suddenly Britain, in fact, developed a reflex of suspicion of Christian values in the corridors of power and the media and public discourse. But uh, there was also a counter-revolution. Since the 1970s in particular, evangelicals woke up to their responsibility to be involved socially in the nation. We owe an enormous debt in, uh, in Britain to John Stott for that, who was a pioneering voice to call Britain, uh, British Christians to engage with the public world. And uh, as that social concern has risen and has been the warp and the woof of most people's lives here, Actually, so has the increasing vehement opposition of secularists. Um, Richard Dawkins, of course, the biologist, 
the philosopher Anthony Grayling, journalists like Christopher Hitchings, all are campaigning ever more vehemently to finally rid British public life of religion. So nearly 900 centuries after the death of uh, Thomas Beckett, it seems to me we are in a period again when there is real tension as there has been so many times in the past between Christians and the state. Now, a number of months ago, in thinking about that and various other things, I very recklessly proposed to the elders that perhaps we should do a series on the Bible and politics. And um, they eagerly uh, responded that I should. I, I had several reasons at that time for suggesting that. And one of them, the most obvious one, is that in a few months' time, we will have a general election. And uh, though I am going to avoid being party political, I do want to help you think a little bit more biblically about perhaps how you might vote. And I also have an aim over these next few weeks to encourage you in all sorts of different ways to see the dignity of being involved in public life. Um, uh, we have a, a vision statement as a church that we want to reach out in word, service and community and that was quite self-conscious that we used that. We, we, we are convinced that we need to reach out in word with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are convinced that we need to witness to the world by the quality of our community, our love together. But we are also convinced that our practical lives of service are a vital part of our witness to Christ. And that not just individual lives um, uh, in the workplace and so on, but in other ways in which we are involved in our community and our nation. And for different people that will take very different forms. But I am convinced that I want to persuade you over the coming weeks that... Um, we have a responsibility at every level to serve in the name of Christ. And then another reason why I wanted to do this series, um, which was, I think, possibly for me, the most important, significant reason, is that I am, I, I am increasingly concerned that Christians, good and godly Christians, in, in many ways well-taught evangelical Christians, that Christians are not thinking clearly about how to engage with these issues. What, what, what should we campaign on? What shouldn't we campaign on? There'll be more about that beginning next week. Um, so I don't want to say any more right now. Um, 
let, let me just alert you to the fact that I, I am trying to provide a little bit more input than just these sermons over these uh, uh, number of weeks. Um, for one, I, I haven't brought my, my copy of it, but um, we have made a purchase of John Stott's New Issues Facing Christians Today. It's a really excellent book that goes through a whole range of moral issues and uh, you can buy a copy from us for just £10. Um, you can go to the website, go to the church website, you will see there a page where you can um, make your payment um, securely and then we will deliver a copy of the book to the back table the following Sunday. So it couldn't be easier for you to get a really, really excellent book which will um, uh, inform you about many, many issues. Um, if you've never read uh, John Stott's Issues Facing Christianity Today, Christians Today, you must read this. If you read the old one, this is a new updated one. So do get it. Also, you will have received slightly fuller um, handouts for the sermons. Um, I just want to give you opportunity to, to uh, um, get as much information as you can. Um, the, the internet is a rich source of information and uh, this week I've given you an introduction to various different things um, there in your handout. So um, there will be a handout, God willing, every week um, on the different topics. Today I just want to do something very simple with you but I think very, very important. Uh, today, I want to persuade you that we have a mandate from Scripture to be involved in our nation's life, locally and nationally. Let me uh, then explain where I'm coming from and I hope persuade you. Crucially, when God created the world, he gave his people a mandate to be involved in that world. The mandate had two dimensions at least to be involved in, in, uh, in the, the, the management of people and the management of resources. You, we had a reading from Genesis chapter 1. I hope uh, you've still got it open in front of you. God has been creating everything and then on the, on the, on the sixth day he creates uh, the man and the woman. And then verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Be fruitful and increase in number till you fill the earth. There is, a, there is an implicit understanding there that, that uh, uh, there is a society going to come into being with multiple relationships. And there is a clear understanding as well that the, the role of human beings is to um, subdue the, the, the earth. The earth was not created bad, it was created good, but it was created needing to be managed. 
there is a, a, a naturalistic um, um, myth, I think, that the best way that we can treat the world is simply by letting it do its own thing. And from the very beginning, the world was created to be managed, to be cared for. And uh, then, as the uh, story uh, develops, we um, find the fall. The man and the woman, they sin, um, and uh, yet, at the fall, the, the description in Genesis chapter 3, the mandate that God has given in chapters 1 and 2 continues. It continues, but it is marred. Now, rather than uh, sinlessly managing people and resources, they are managing a world of sin and degradation. Look at chapter 3, verse 16, for instance. Uh, speaking to the woman, God says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Yeah. So the mandate to multiply and fill the earth is still there. It is now marred by pain. And then he goes on, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And originally they had been in perfect harmony and now there's clearly conflict. There's, there's a man ruling over a woman. There's a, a woman somehow um, being, by, being driven by, by out of uh, control desires. There is the beginning of fracturing of society. Or the mandate to uh, uh, to, to um, uh, fill the earth and subdue it gets mentioned in God's word to Adam, verse 17, halfway through. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. In other words, the, 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 uh, the, the land is still going to provide food for them. It's not totally desert. But it's going to be hard work now. Originally, they were given the job to, to, uh, to, to care for and work the garden. Now work has become toil. By the sweat of your brow, verse 19, you will eat your food until death takes over. So, uh, so, the mandate then, both in terms of managing people and managing resources, is still there. It is now marred by sin and degradation. And what originally was intended to be a sinless joy is now tough and difficult but all the questions of modern politics are here in germinal form. That's what I want you to see. How do you manage relationships? That is the underlying question for a thousand political issues. How do you manage relationships which tend towards hostility? What do you do about family breakdown? What's your attitude towards war? 
How are you going to have, a, a, what, what criminal justice system should you have? All the results of fallen human relationships. How do you manage the resources on this planet now that in fact it is hard and difficult? What do you do about global warming? What do you do about poverty and drought and malnutrition in the, in the developing world? What do you do about the fact that resources are unequally, um, are unequally shared? A combination there of the people um, problem and the resources problem. Politics is all about dealing with the four. And uh, the mandate for God's people to be uh, concerned with every aspect of that continues when uh, Israel is chosen as God's uh, chosen people. She is not just told how to worship God. Rather, she is told, she is given laws about, about the land. She is given laws about how people are to deal with each, uh, deal with each other. She is to be a model community for the world to see in every respect. And when you get to the prophets, the prophets are not, in fact, not especially criticizing the sort of worship practices very often of the nation, they are, they are criticising the social injustices and the greed of the nation. At every point, there is a holistic attitude to how they should live. And then, as the Bible story goes on, we get to what uh, the theologians often call the moment of redemption. Jesus comes along and Jesus introduces a concept which um, is, uh, uh, has caused much debate amongst Christians on this attitude of how to be involved in the wider world. He spoke of two kingdoms. For instance, in John uh, uh, chapter 18, verse uh, 36, um, turn to it if you want to. He's speaking to uh, Pontius Pilate, who is, uh, who is the governor, the political authority, and he says very clearly to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is from another place. So he's making a clear statement then that the kingdom that he is inaugurating is not a conventional, earthly, political kingdom. That is not what he is doing. That is what Israel was, uh, was intended to be. That is not the kingdom that Jesus comes to inaugurate. Indeed, he gives a clear prohibition in this verse, doesn't he, of Christians using force to establish the kingdom of God. My people won't do that, he says. 
So now there is a challenge for Christians because Christians belong to another kingdom, not a political kingdom. A kingdom um, that stands out as different from the ordinary kingdoms of this world. Now, more on that next week, but uh, we must um, um, note then at this point that the church's priority must be to preach the gospel and to stand for up for this non-political kingdom of God, non-earthly kingdom of God. A priority must be that. The evangelicals of the early 20th century were absolutely right. That must be the case. Our priority must be to, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it would be overstating it to say that we have therefore no responsibility to earthly kingdoms. And Jesus himself made that very plain in another of his sayings, which is recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke. But here it is in Matthew chapter 22. In that context, he is, um, uh, people are trying to trap him in precisely the, the, with precisely a political dilemma. Should we um, give taxes, they say, um, to um, uh, Caesar, effectively? Tell us, uh, then, what, what is your opinion, they say? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And uh, they know that Jesus is caught in a trap here. If he says, no, it is right to pay taxes to Caesar, then um, he will be subordinating himself to the Roman Emperor and therefore accepting that he's not the highest authority. If, on the other hand, he says, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, as many of the more radical Jews said, because they were determined not to be subordinate to the Roman Emperor, well, then he just becomes a, um, a, a, a political activist, a political rebel. Jesus gives an extremely clever and perfectly balanced answer. He gets um, a denarius, the tax, and he says, whose image is on it? There's a picture of one, so that you know what he's talking about. It's the image of the emperor is on it. And uh, uh, yet, we read in Genesis 1, didn't we? that every person is in the image of God. It's the image of God on that coin. So, uh, when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God's, God what is God's, he is saying two things. He is saying, yeah, we owe appropriate allegiance to Caesar. 
money is a is is only a useful uh, thing in the in the uh, nation because Caesar governs the Roman world, and we owe appropriate allegiance to someone who looks after society. But the image behind the image is God himself. We owe our ultimate allegiance only to God. God is our sovereign. Caesar is only our leader in a very in a derivative way. We belong then, says Jesus, to two kingdoms as Christians. The kingdom of this world, which we owe appropriate allegiance to, and the kingdom of God, which is our primary identity and our ultimate authority. The New Testament picture of how the church works that out then is also similarly reasonably clear. The church, um, uh, I've summarised its, its role as witness and incarnation. The church had a clear priority to proclaim the gospel. You see that all over the place. Whenever you, If ever you pick up any bit of New Testament, after the Gospels, you'll see that priority of living as the people of God in the kingdom of God. But she is also called to live in the wider world. Sometimes, relating to the wider world as a distinct community, live such good lives among the pagans, Peter says, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, in other words, our daily lives as God's people is a witness to Jesus Christ. But uh, sometimes, um, perhaps, it goes beyond even that to be publicly engaged and involved in that other government. For instance, uh, Romans 13. I can't remember whether I've got a... Um, no, I haven't. Um, uh, got a slide, so let, just, just turn with me to Romans chapter 13 so that you can see what I'm saying, whether it's true or not. It's page on 1140. In Romans 13... The Apostle Paul is extremely positive about government. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And then verse uh, 4, for instance, um, uh, the, the, the ruler is God's servant to do you good. If you do wrong, we're afraid he doesn't bear the sword for nothing. He's God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, he says. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Give to the government what you owe it, he says. You must be loyal citizens. Absolutely clearly, Christians cannot avoid taxation. And similarly, Christians cannot um, step away from the obligation to vote. You have a biblical, holy obligation to vote in this country. We are a democracy. That is part of your loyalty to the nation that you should To my shame, I once failed to vote. I've told some people this story. It was in local elections. Turvis, when I was a student, Turvis in the house were a bit tired at the end of the day and we both agreed that what difference did our vote make? Um, We were both going to vote for the same candidate and we thought, no, we wouldn't bother to go out. Um, The candidate lost by two votes. I will never fail to vote again. You have a biblical duty to vote. But even uh, beyond that in in the New Testament, there is evidence that if possible, we have the duty and responsibility to be involved as far as we can in the life of our nation. The reality was that Christians in the first three centuries had very little opportunity to do so. But when they could, they did. For instance, in Romans 16, verse 23, there's reference to a man called Erastus, who is, the, who is Corinth's director of public works. That's a political role, senior political role in the city. And here is a Christian a member of the church in Corinth, serving the Lord as a relatively senior politician. So I want to say to you, do not avoid involvement in the public life of this nation. Do not despise or be suspicious of those who do get involved, particularly Christians. Uh, There has never been a better time to get involved. Politics is despised in our nation. Well, Christians have been prepared to be despised, haven't they, by Jesus himself. Politics is full of corruption. What better time for Christians of integrity to get involved. And of course it's a moment when anti-Christian ideas and attitudes increasingly rule. What better time for Christians to serve and to give a different perspective. That could be very local and very minor. The last church we were in, we had a local councillor as well as an MP actually. But it doesn't have to be exalted. It could be very informal. 
politicians listen when people write letters. Um, But there is every mandate from God in our democracy to get involved. Not least because of how the Bible ends. The final consummation of all things when Jesus returns and the new heaven and the new earth is created. And it is not a sort of spiritual other world. It is a restoration of God's creation. Certainly far more glorious even than it was when it was first created. But just as much a physical creation as the first one has been. And indeed in Revelation 21, verse 26, we read that the glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Somehow, everything that is good that has happened in our world for the whole of history will have its echo in eternity. Not a thing will be lost. The glory and honour of the nations will be incorporated into God's final new creation. All sin, all degradation will be removed. But all good things will be preserved. Not even a cup of cold water to get given to one of my little ones, said Jesus, will be forgotten. How that will work, Scripture just does not tell us. But it means that everything that we do in this world, in the name of Christ and for his glory, is worth it, is significant, will not be lost. So what role has God given you in this world? You know, I passionately hope that some, for some, he has given the role of proclaiming the gospel of serving not so much in the wider world as God's people, the church. That is my calling and I passionately hope that there are people who will discover here that that is their calling and serve God for the rest of their life, not particularly focused on our wider world because we need people like that. I'm absolutely certain that every single one of us is called to be concerned for that wider world though and to be serving in that wider world to some extent. And my prayer as well is that perhaps some will see service in the wider world in the corridors of power of one sort or another as the great calling on their life.
we will not see people turn to Christ in numbers simply by preaching to them. Scripture says that actually they need to hear the word but also they need to see that it works out in good lives, in lives lived for the public good. The two are not separate from one another. God's church is called to be involved in both for the glory of Christ. And I'm massively excited about what even a modest group like this devoting their whole lives to serving God in multiple different ways can achieve for the glory of Christ. Do not underestimate what that combined witness of word, service and community can achieve. The Hindu Nobel Prize winner Rabindranath Tagore was speaking to a Christian leader and he said this on the day when we see Jesus Christ living out his life in you on that day we Hindus will flock to your Christ even as doves flock to their feeding ground the Hindus read Muslims Atheists, agnostics, everyone. This is our calling. There's no more glorious calling we could have.